Well, the empty tomb witnesses, uh, but then we'll really kind of take a look at Jesus' appearances after, uh, after that, after the tomb is found empty. Uh, we're going to look at a guy named Cleopas and uh, his unnamed buddy, travel companion, as they're leaving Jerusalem and heading back to their town, most likely Emmaus, about seven miles away. And uh, I'm convinced that our journey of faith is not that different from this guy Cleopas and his buddy. And so I think we're going we're gonna to see them as two men who had hope. They had great hope and enthusiasm in this Jesus. And then they lost that hope. It was gone. The text says, we had hoped that he was the one to come redeem Israel. And then Jesus walks, appears and walks along with them and restores their hope. And I think we have a lot to learn as we look at their journey of faith and the happiness and hope that God wants us to have in Christ in a relationship with him, uh, where we can really resonate with them. And the question becomes, and these are the questions we ask when we look at texts like this, is why does Luke record this appearance of Jesus with Cleopas and his buddy before Luke records any appearances of Jesus with any of the apostles, or Mary Magdalene, or Jesus' mom, Mary, or any others? Why does Luke first give us this story of a famous walk to Emmaus um, to build our certainty in Christ so that we would grow in our happiness and hope and look at Cleopas and his buddies really um, and their journey of faith really is kind of an example of this, the journey of faith we all go through um, as we treasure Christ, as we trust him more and more each day. So Luke chapter 24, I'm going to reread uh, the text uh, that Dr. Bob just read, uh, Jesus' the resurrection witnesses, how women go to bring spices because Greg Fell told us last week, right, on the Sabbath, Friday evening to Saturday evening, they couldn't do anything. And so the timing of it was to bring spices to go uh, anoint the body uh, of Jesus. They had to wait till Sunday morning. And so now we pick up, they had prepared the spices, they waited till Sunday morning, and now we have the women going to the tomb, expecting to find Jesus' dead body there and so they could uh, do kind of the, the, the ceremonial stuff. Um, that they were used to doing. So text says this, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, that is, which day? Sunday, so the same week as we have. Uh, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were uh, wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, every time an angel shows up, people are afraid every time in Scripture. So this makes sense. The women see angels, they're afraid. This is probably what we would do, right? Be kind of scared. Uh, in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. Why eleven? Judas. Judas is a goner at this point, right? Uh, and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told them, 
uh, who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now we pick up on that same day, we're still Sunday, on that same day, two of them, two of who? Disciples, followers of Christ, right? So they knew Jesus. On that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. Some versions, translations say, they stood still, deeply saddened. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Hey, have you had your head in the sand? What, what do you mean, what are, you talk, what are we talking about? Where have you been? Are you the only one who has no idea what's going on? What things? Verse 19, he, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for his nearing evening. Nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? While well, he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true. The Lord has risen and appeared to Simon, Peter. Then the two told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Pretty familiar story. The, the road to Emmaus, these two guys who all of a sudden Jesus just appears and starts walking to them. They don't recognize who he is until he takes bread, breaks it. And their the spiritual eyes are opened. They recognize him. He disappears. They go back to the eleven and tell them what has happened. So it all starts with hope. Cleopas, this buddy of his, had hope. They lost hope. And Jesus ultimately is restoring their hope. And it all begins with hope. And so, like us, we come to faith in Christ and we're energized. We're excited. We have great hope and enthusiasm. It all starts there. They uh, had hope in this, this Christ. And so 
Same day, two of them were going along the village to Emmaus, about seven miles away. They're talking about the things that had happened. Jesus himself comes up and walks along them, uh, along with them. Kept from recognizing him, but, and, and they asked, what, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, they're very sad. Um, ultimately, they explain what they're talking about. Have you had, who are you? Why don't you get it? Right, everybody's talking about this. This has been a big deal. We had hope in this Christ, this Jesus. And so verse 20, the chief priests and rulers handed, over, uh, handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him, but we had hoped. We had great hope in this guy, right? We listened to his teaching. We saw him do crazy, miraculous things. We had hope that he was the one. It started with the hope they had placed in him as the promised Messiah, as Jews who saw the Old Testament and saw that Jesus had come to fulfill it. He was the promised Messiah all along. He came to, to reign and to rule. But at some point, they lost that hope. They had, uh, they had weakened in their amount of hope, uh, and they started to face some disappointments. We had hoped that Jesus was the one. Implied there is, well, he died, and he's still dead. So our hope is gone, right? We're disappointed because we had such hope in this Jesus, And now we're facing that disappointment. We don't know what's next. Everybody's talking about this. We're just going back home. Life goes on, right? And you and I come to faith in Christ. We're energized. And then life hits the fan, right? Things get difficult. Life is not easy. We have to face disappointments every day of our lives, right? And we start losing hope, right? We know the truth of who Jesus is, but how how does that intersect with our everyday lives, and we start to lose hope. We start to face disappointments. We start to question, why are these things happening? And so a lot of, a lot of this I see um, really in two ways when we face disappointments. One is we just pretend there's no disappointments, right? We, we know that we're supposed to be happy in Jesus. And so we just pretend that there's no disappointment. There's no uh, anxiety. There's no uh, sadness in our life. There's no heartbreak. There's no struggle, we just pretend, we put it to the side, and we pretend all is well, right? And that's not healthy. That's not what God calls us to do, is it? No. Um, the other way I see people face disappointments is they compartmentalize their faith separate from everything else in life. That I have my faith, and it's nice and tidy, and I go to church on Sunday mornings, and then there's the rest of life. And the rest of life is filled with all sorts of emotions, all sorts of ups and downs, all sorts of uh, celebrations and heartaches. And it just doesn't, my faith doesn't intersect with everyday life, right? I have a Sunday faith and I have a Monday through Friday kind of home work life that I need to just go through the motions. And I compartmentalize everything. And that's just wrong, right? So Jesus invites us to follow him and, and then every part of life um, is changed, right? How we think, how we live, how we treat each other, how relationships work, um, not just a Sunday morning kind of thing, but every aspect of our life is for him and for his glory and for our joy, right? And so they stood still. What did Jesus is, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, deeply saddened. They're face downcast. They had lost hope. They're facing great disappointments. And they don't know how to align these things with what has taken place. They don't know what's next. They don't know how to proceed. 
But we had hoped that he was the one going to redeem Israel. Implied, I think we were wrong. Right? But we had hoped. So not only beginning with hope and then facing disappointments, but we admit that we have misconceptions about Jesus. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. I think Luke is a brilliant author. And I think it's ironic that they're, they're walking with Jesus, not recognizing that this is Jesus himself, risen from the dead, right? conquered the grave. We had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. And they're talking to Jesus. And did he just redeem Israel? He did. Right? And they don't get it. They're still kind of putting things together. They, they're admitting, at this point, they're going to start admitting, as Jesus is revealing himself, that they have misconceptions about him. And I think often we do the same, right? And so, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And in fact, he was. But their thought of redeeming Israel was a military, a political redemption, right? Jesus, the Messiah, would come and wipe out Rome. Rome would be no more. Our lives would be happier and easier because of it, right? They had expectations on the Messiah that weren't correct. They had misconceptions about how he would come, why he would come, how the kingdom of God would be uh, put into fe- put into effect. Um, so... A couple uh, thoughts as I just, in whatever years of uh, following Christ and having relationships with those who have faith in Christ and those who don't, there's a lot of just misconceptions out there. And some of the major ones uh, that keep people from seeing Jesus is questions like this. Well, why would God allow bad things to happen if God's good and loving and right? And I usually kind of interact with these people with more questions about what do you mean by bad things or evil? Like how does, what defines evil? Um, Well, and how could you explain why good things happen? I know, I I get what you're asking about bad things happening, but explain why good things happen. Um, If this was all just a chaotic mess, uh, explosion in the sky, randomness kind of a thing. Uh, Another question that's often asked is, well, Jesus is just one of many options. And so on Easter, I'm going to go to church to cover my basis. And then I'm going to, you know, I could, I could have a little bit of everything just so that I'm safe come, you know, the eruption of Yellowstone. I'm going to be good going forward. Um, if Jesus were one of many options, why would God send his son to die on a cross, the worst of deaths, tortured and crucified, hanging on a cross? If there were other options, if there are other ways to be saved, how could I follow? How could I love a God like that that would send his son for no reason? Just to be one option of many options, right? I think we have some other misconceptions, more like Cleopas and his buddies, those who recognize Jesus, who have faith and trust in Christ. I think we have misconceptions like him where we think we place our faith in Christ and life going forward is going to be easier and uh, happier and less disappointments, uh, right? And then we're disappointed real quickly when life hits the fan again, right? It, life stinks. Um, relationships are hard. Uh, we're hurt. Uh, we struggle uh, with all sorts of temptations. And we struggle in all, all, all sorts of ways. And so we, we too, like Cleopas and his buddy, think that... Uh, God will make our circumstances better and easier, right? Don't we? I think we have misconceptions about placing our faith in Christ and then 
going forward, it's just going to be a parade. It's going to be awesome. And then whatever days later, maybe the same day, we're just hit with disappointment and heartache and suffering and persecution, right? And Jesus is preparing his disciples then and us now saying, hey, following me doesn't mean life is going to be easy. Not going to be simple. You're going to face heartache. In fact, you're going to be persecuted even to the point of death. And we live in a country where we don't face the kind of persecution that anybody else in the world does, right? We have it pretty good. But we have misconceptions that following Jesus means I'm going to be happier, healthier, wealthier sometimes. And that could be the case, but it's not a promise in Scripture, right? God does want us to be happy, but ultimately not in our circumstances. He wants us to be happy in our relationship with him, right? And so we have hope not based on the externals, not based on what happens on Monday morning or Thursday evening. We have hope fixed reality in the person and work of Christ. And God wants us to find great joy uh, and happiness in him, not in what he gives, not in the circumstances of life, but in him, right? So the reward of trusting and following Jesus is Jesus, nothing else. Nothing else matters when he's the greatest treasure, when he's the greatest joy, right? So we admit that we, like Cleopas, like his buddy, we could have misconceptions uh, about who Jesus is and what he did. We trust credible witnesses and embrace the truth about Jesus. So this is interesting to me because these guys had been with the 11 apostles, other disciples, these ladies, some ladies that had seen the empty tomb, had had seen angels who spoke to them that Jesus is not in the tomb because he is alive. And yet they don't trust these witnesses, right? The, the text earlier says the disciples didn't believe some of these women because they, it sounded like nonsense, right? So we had hoped that he was the one to come to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of the companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they didn't see Jesus. And so they didn't, we have, we have witnesses of an empty tomb and they're not believing these witnesses, right? They're not trusting credible witnesses to the reality of what's, ha- what's happening. Secondly, not only are they not trusting the women and those who had seen the empty tomb, they're not trusting Jesus himself. How many times in Luke has Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die and rise again. Does anybody remember? Three times. So he's reminding, recorded in Luke, maybe much more times, just to say, hey, I know you're, this is hard to believe, but this is, going, this is what's going to happen. And so over and over again, the disciples are reminded, men and women following Jesus, hey, this has to happen. There's no other way. Right? This is why I came. Jesus is reiterating. Luke is reiterating through his writing of Jesus' life. So not only are they not trusting the women, they're not trusting Jesus himself, right? So, verse 25. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Dummies, of my interpretation. Did not Jesus the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Right? Jesus told you these things. Didn't these things have to happen? Why didn't you believe him? 
So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. He urged him to stay, so he stayed. As soon as he breaks the bread, do I have that? As soon as he breaks the bread, they recognize him for who he is. Do I have a typo that everybody's laughing at? No. Oh. Did I say something about? Oh, it's just, okay. Just make sure I'm good. Jackson can say whatever he wants. I need my cookie, too. Um, so not only did they not trust the women and the witnesses to an empty tomb, they didn't trust Jesus himself saying that these things would happen. But thirdly, they're not trusting the prophets. Jesus is going to open the scriptures to them. Of anybody, he's God himself. Of anybody who could just say, hey, I'm God. What does he do? He opens their scriptures, the Old Testament, the Torah, and, and looks at the prophets, the writings, the Psalms, and says, and sh- shows them how everything, end of verse 27, uh, what was said in the scriptures concerning himself, he's showing them everything has pointed to me. You didn't believe the whole Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. I am the anointed one, the, the Messiah to come. I have come to redeem Israel. Just you have a misconception of what that looks like. Right? I have not come to enforce and enact my full kingdom yet. But someday I will. And so they have, they're not trusting credible witnesses to the reality of the resurrection. Right, Women... The empty tomb, those who saw the empty tomb, Jesus himself saying these things have to happen and will happen. And in fact, they did. And they're not trusting the prophets, right? And all summer last year, we looked at how the prophets in the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus. That's the purpose of the entirety of the Old Testament, all pointing to Jesus, the one to come. So people were saved in the Old Testament the same way they're saved in the New Testament, by having hope in this Christ, right? Not saved by observing the law, not saved by anything they can do, only saved by grace through faith in the one to come. And we live on, we live on the other side of history knowing that man has come. God has come himself in flesh and has paid the price for us, has come to redeem us, in fact, has saved us. So we trust credible witnesses, the whole Old Testament, pointing to him among others. Jesus himself saying these things have to happen. Remember two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus says, Father, if there's any other way, let it be. And Jesus isn't disagreeing. They're not in different pages. They don't have different wills, father and son. But he's just saying, he's just reiterating, there's no other way. This is why I came. This has to be, this has to happen. So that I could save, so that my blood could atone for the sins of the world. And we, lastly, we just treasure the resurrected, living, life-transforming Jesus. And so Jesus explains these things. He points to the scriptures as pointing to himself. And so they urge him. It's nearly, nearly evening. The day's almost over. Stay with us. So he does. When, he, when he's at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they, and they recognized him spiritually, right? So Jesus is, or Luke is often talking about spiritual sight, right? We had the blind man who physically couldn't see, but he saw Jesus spiritually, right? Luke left and right is showing us that seeing Jesus rightly for who he is, is essential. And the only appropriate response is trust, faith in who he is. So uh, immediately they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked? with us on the road and open the scriptures to us. 
They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon Peter. Then the two told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them as soon as he broke the bread and gave it to them. And so they have, they, they treasure, they come full circle, right? They had hope in this Jesus. They lost hope in this Jesus. Circumstances of life got difficult. They faced disappointment. Life was not easy. And then Jesus restored their hope, right? Pointed them to the hope that's ultimately in him, not the circumstances of life. The joy that's found in him, the happiness found in him, not uh, the externals. Life transforming Jesus. And so I, I, so I asked that same question. Why does Luke put this here before Jesus appears to the apostles, before Jesus appears to his mother, anybody else? Why does Luke first record this occurrence of Jesus appearing to Cleopas and his buddy, two guys that we haven't been introduced to yet in Luke's gospel, two guys that the other gospels don't talk about, right? Luke is the only one to record this, um, these guys on the road to Emmaus. And I think it's the, I think it's, uh, the reason is this. Uh, there's a theme in the book of Luke that he continues to reinforce, and it's this. Uh, we may think, uh, we may be very, really familiar with Jesus, we may think we really know him. We may have all the right answers. Uh, we may uh, be really close to him that we think, but we could still miss Jesus, right? We could be so familiar with him, thinking that we know him and, and we don't. We're, we're going to miss him ultimately. And so Luke wants us to know that we could possibly uh, not be recognizing and treasuring him for who he is, or we could actually grow in our hope and our happiness in him. We have room to grow, right? That's how Luke started his letter, right? With uh, Zechariah, later he, be, you know, obviously he's the, the father of John the Baptist, but he's the priest, he's one of the religious leaders, and he, Luke shows us that even him, he has room to grow. He can grow in his trust and his confidence and his hope in this Christ, in this Messiah. And so Luke, from the very beginning, is showing, hey, we could be very familiar with Jesus and still have lots of room to grow. So don't miss Jesus. Lots of people are missing Jesus, even though they're familiar with the answers and the holidays and, you know, why we celebrate Christmas and Easter. But they could still miss Jesus. So don't miss who he is, why he came, who, what, he, what he ultimately did for us. So that's why I think Luke puts this account first, because we have two guys that think they're really familiar with Jesus and what he did. And yet they missed him. They had misconceptions. They, they faced the reality of life and started wandering and questioning and not linking the truth of who Jesus is. And so Luke is encouraging us, like, make sure we're like Cleopas and his buddy, that even when we face the circumstances of life, even when we lose hope, we, we need to look to Jesus for the restoration of that hope, for the, for the happiness and the joy that's only found in him. Hope that makes sense a little bit. Couple takeaways. <clears throat> Jesus transforms life. He's risen. He's alive. He conquered death. He conquered the tomb. He conquered sin and Satan. Uh, a couple things that this does for us. It, it, it brings disappointment to fulfillment, right? These guys were greatly disappointment, disappointed. They were sad. Their faces were downcast. And because the circumstances got difficult, they had misconceptions. They didn't know what was going to happen. They feared their own lives. 
And so Jesus doesn't promise to change our circumstances, but he does promise to meet us where we are. Like these guys on the road to Emmaus, he just meets them where they are. Look, look at the scriptures. This is pointing to the reality of what Jesus did. And they're still not recognizing Jesus, right? They don't recognize him until he sits down in their house and breaks bread, right? But he's pointing to the scripture saying what just happened in Jerusalem had to happen. The whole Old Testament scriptures point to this. And so Jesus, uh, in the midst of our disappointment, doesn't promise to change our circumstances, but promises to fulfill our salvation. Right? He will fulfill that. There's, no, there's nothing getting in the way thwarting, thwarting God's plan uh, to bring salvation to those who trust in Christ. Uh, we go from lonely to experiencing God's presence, right? Jesus has left them. He's gone. They think he's dead. But he wants to commune with us now, like just like he goes back and sits with them. And, and next week we'll look at a text where he shows them, like, look at my hands. I'm with you. As we transition from Luke to Acts, Jesus is going to leave and he prepares them again saying, hey, I have to leave, but it's for the better. And I'm going to be with you. I'm just not going to be with you physically, face to face. I'm going to be with you through the Holy Spirit. So loneliness to presence, doubting to confidence. Luke writes so that we would be more certain, right? These guys start doubting. We, everyday life hits. Life hits the fan. Life stinks. We go from doubting to confidence. Luke is trying to build our confidence, our hope, our certainty in Christ, knowing that there's no one like him. He fulfills everything. He's the promised Messiah. He's God in human flesh. And the only appropriate response is to trust him with our everyday lives, with everything we have. He changes everything. He gives us everything. And we go from abandonment into commissioning. Come back next week. We'll see Jesus as he tells his disciples, his followers, men and women, hey, I'm going to leave, but it'll be better because now I'm going to multiply my presence throughout the world in and through you guys. Pretty cool stuff. And so our prayer becomes our hope and happiness on a steady incline, that we would grow in our certainty and our hope and our happiness and our joy and the reality who Jesus is what he did without letting anything in life kind of shake our foundation. Knowing that life is hard, life will be difficult. We're not promised health and wealth and prosperity and easygoing everyday reality, but life is going to be difficult. Relationships are hard. Sin, individual sin, corporate sin, even the world is groaning because of the weight of sin. And so we just wait for Jesus to come back knowing that there's nothing better than following him. He, he is who he says he is. He is what the scriptures point to. He did fulfill everything he said he would. And the scriptures say must have happened. He did it all. And so that we would, in Luca's writing, so that we would grow in that hope, that certainty. Uh, ultimately, that we would be happier and that we would have more and more hope in this Christ. And there's nothing better than that. Nothing better. He's the greatest treasure and the greatest joy. So how do we grow in that? We just focus on Jesus. We look to him every day, not just Sunday mornings, but we look to Christ every day through thick and thin, through the ups and downs. We keep our eyes on him. When we start fading, we recalibrate. Let's look to Jesus ultimately for everything. God, thanks for the reality of the, the risen Christ, the one who fulfilled the Old Testament prophets, 
the Old Testament writings, the Old Testament Psalms, all the scriptures pointing to him, who he is, what he did, what he had to do to take on uh, our sins, uh, to bear our punishment, to pay the price that we deserve to pay, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, what we deserved and yet couldn't do. Yet he could, because as fully man and fully God, he could pay that price. Uh, The perfect, sinless, spotless lamb whose blood was shed so that we could have new life, so that we could have hope, so that we could have happiness, not in the circumstances of life, but happiness and joy rooted, found ultimately in him, who he is, a relationship with him. Would we grow in our hope? Would we grow in our treasuring Jesus above all? Thank you again for the cross. Thanks for conquering death and Satan and sin so that we could be restored, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be brought near into a relationship with Christ. It's in his matchless name we pray. Amen.